Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. We'll be focusing on the the events of this entire chapter. Uh, To begin, I'll only read verse 11 down to 24. Uh, This is coming on the heels of the same Abram who in chapter 12 was willing to sacrifice his wife just to save his own hide. Um, He was acting in cowardice and fear, uh, a quick response to a famine to come, and he forgot the faith he had. He still had the faith in God. He trusted in God's promises, but like we people do, he wavered at that moment. It was almost very costly. But God renewed covenant with him. Despite his unfaithfulness, Abraham's or Abram's unfaithfulness, God showed himself faithful, rescued Sarai and Abram and all of their household and moved them back to the promised land where he should have stayed, or at least he should have sought God before he ever left. And he was renewed in his faith. Abram was a different person after that whole episode. And where we see this uh, most poignantly is in this chapter. Right away, we see that cowardly Abram, who acted and reacted too quickly, become a man of valor, a man of great courage, when you see what unfolds in chapter 14. Now, I'll tell you the context, because the verses are a bit cumbersome. We'll cover them in the sermon But let me tell you what's happening so that when we read it later, it'll make more sense to you. It's one of those passages you've got to read a few times. So keep your Bibles open to Genesis 14. The first 10 verses, though, tell a bit of a story of the kings in the region. If you picture Israel on the map, and if you could think back to uh, the way it used to look in Abraham's day, but even in today, you think of modern Iraq and and, um, Iran up on the eastern side, and then Israel is a big strip with the Jordan River going down and the Dead Sea. Um, on one side of the Dead Sea, Abram was, and the other side were other civilizations, and there were city-states all throughout the ancient Near East and Middle East. These city-states were, were small, uh, but they, had, they could have thousands of people in them, and they were somewhat nomadic. They can move pretty quickly, and they had been developing over years. Abram started developing his later compared to others, and of course, remember his nephew Lot went over to live outside basically the, the suburbs of Sodom on the other side of the Dead Sea. Well, at this time in Abram's life, there, were, there was a major king who gathered or made a confederacy of kings from the north who decided to attack and pillage the south. Now, remember this about antiquity. They didn't have digital currency and savings in banks. Basically, your wealth was how much silver, gold, livestock, and manpower you had. And you are always preparing for some other group to take your stuff. That's what they did. And that really hasn't changed. People are always trying to take your stuff, and that's what happened in these city-states. In the northern regions, saw what the south had and decided they would come down and take for themselves their stuff. And so they did this in a major campaign. And even though the southern kings tried to mount an attack, they couldn't fend them off, and they were basically subjugated by the northern kings. The northern kings moved back up to their places, but then pressed them for taxes, burdened them with taxes for years to come. For 12 years before the southern kings said, enough of this. We're going to quit paying the taxes. So they just quit paying the taxes. Well, the northern kings got together again, came down, this time pillaging even more city-states, and finally working their way down on the eastern side of the Jordan River, getting to to Sodom and Gomorrah and those cities that are around that, near the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, then sweeping around after pillaging everything they could get from Sodom and Gomorrah the second time, took Lot and started moving back up north on the other side, not too far away from where Abram was. So let's pick up in the passage, and we'll start reading, or I will start reading at verse 11. Please pay close attention. 
This is God's holy inspired word. We can rely on it completely. Verse 11 of Genesis 14. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then when one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner, these were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and people. After his return from the defeat of Shadolamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God uh, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, you have saved us and you have transformed us by the blood of your Son. We are new creations in Christ. It is in this light that you give your children challenging tasks that can only be done in faith. Here we see Abram. We see him act very courageously because you empowered him to do so. As we read and study this passage, please convict and encourage us by your Holy Spirit that we might act on the faith that you have given us in whatever way you might call us, in the big ways and the small ways, in all these ways that demand a bit of courage. May you, O Lord, accomplish your will through your people by the power of your word and spirit. I lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you can see this is a different Abram from the Abram that we met back in chapter 12. This is a transformed Abram. Now, Abram believed in God's saving promises back in chapter 12. But his maturity in the faith was not at a level that could fend off the great challenge he was faced with when the famine arose. But God, showing even more grace to Abram, develops and grows his faith deeper. So now when we come to the Abram of Genesis 14, we see someone different. We see someone who has grown in their faith, and that growth in faith allows him to do some courageous, bold, even risky things for God. His faith in the promises of God. We're talking now about those initial promises that he would be God's child, that he would give him a son that from the Son would come the seed of the woman that had been so long forecasted, that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from him. He trusted in God for these promises. He trusted in God for the initial promises that his family would enjoy blessing, that the earth would enjoy the blessings of Abram's family, 
pictured in the Messiah, realized in the Messiah. But also, remember Genesis 13. Remember what we learn really compels Abram at the most at the deepest level? Something that the author of Hebrews confirms. Abram knew that he would live eternal life. He knew there would be a resurrection. He knew there would be a heavenly country to come. He knew what he saw there was temporary. He knew the land promises were only immediate. Those were pictures of the eternal city that he would inherit someday as a son of God through the eventual Christ to come. This is what compelled him. So it's his faith in the promises of God that compels him or empowers him to go do things that you would never imagine any normal person would be able to do. And though we see Abram as a father of the faith and as a power figure in the faith, recognize that he's also a picture to all of us as someone who goes through the ups and downs of the Christian life. We can, we can relate on some level with him on these fluctuations that happen that are normal for anybody in the faith, and the way God continues to pour out his grace to compel us when he calls us to do courageous things. There are big things and there are small things, but they can still be courageous that he calls us to, especially when we have to go against something or step out of our comfort zone to help someone. Faith in God's promises empowers courageous actions for his glory. Brothers and sisters, it's your faith, the faith that God's given you in Christ, that will compel you to act in ways that you can't even imagine until you're pressed to act. Your faith in God's promises will give you the courage, the courage that you need to live to honor Christ. We see Abram as such an example. We can look out throughout church history and see those examples. But you could look even around us in, in our midst, in our day, and recognize people who are, are normal, everyday people like you and I that don't seem to have any more gifts or abilities than, than any one of us, but God compels them by their faith to do amazing things. I don't know how many of you know Ruth Tisdale. Ruth Tisdale is the director of our local advice and aid pregnancy center. She has been literally on the gates of hell for years leading that institution right across the street from Planned Parenthood. And I can imagine that it will get even more busy and challenging as the weeks and months to come. She's a diminutive woman. She's not big, but she is powerful in her faith. And I'm always amazed with how courageous she is with all she deals with and faces firsthand. There's an example of someone who God's given faith to, and it's resulted in her doing really courageous things. I don't know how many of you uh, remember Pavel Horhev. You've heard of his name many times. He's a local, now he's a local Kansas City pastor. He's from Moldova, Russian-speaking. He came here by God's call to start a church, predominantly of those who have immigrated from the former Soviet countries that speak Russian or some dialect thereof. Um, he also, they're taking in refugees now that are coming over from Ukraine. Well, on my way to my son's wedding, I get a text from him saying, Brother Tony, pray for me. I'm going to Moldova right now. Now, this is the best time to go to Moldova, in my opinion, but that's because God hasn't granted me the faith he's granted Pavel. So Pavel's whole mission is to get to Moldova to basically get into Ukraine to minister to the church there, that he's had a long ministry with Pastor Ivan. So he and Pastor Ivan are going to go into Ukraine without concern for their well-being to carry out this mission that he believes the Lord has called him to, to grant, to give some relief to those there and to bring the gospel there and minister to people who are Christians and to present Christ to those who are not. Now, even closer to home, many of you probably remember Mark Dunn, one of our deacons. Mark is, he's a man of great faith. The Lord's called him to do a lot of, I think, crazy things, and that's the difference between the person who has faith and the person who's watching someone who has great faith. Uh, But it was about two months ago, whenever the war just started in Ukraine, and they were dropping bombs everywhere, and no one knew really what city was next. 
he sends several of us a text with him driving a truck. Now, I don't know if he has a CDL or anything like it, but he's driving a truck. It doesn't look like an American truck. It looks foreign. He just sends me the picture. It's a semi, and he's driving this thing with an orange vest on and his normal smile. And the terrain out the window doesn't look the same either. Mark, where are you? He's in Ukraine driving supplies to people in Ukraine while this is going on from Poland. Um, someone in his church had a connection to a ministry. They needed someone, people to drive to bring supplies, food and water and such to those who were suffering. And Mark signs up for it and he's driving a truck in Ukraine like the week after. I'm not saying God will call you to that. But he may call you to something that is going to demand courage for you relative to where you are. God knows what it is that uh, he will equip us for. Whatever it may be. Faith in God's promises, ultimately, this is what compels Christians to do courageous things for him. And these actions don't have to be on the same level. This could be a a Christian college student who's standing against the tide of a sinful culture and even a sinful uh, teaching that comes at them all the time, pressed. For a high school student who's dealing with things that most of us can't relate with who are older because it's so much heavier, so much more intense, and yet they're standing for God's law, for God's will in their life, and they're doing their best to stay and be pure. Could be the Christian politician, the Christian businessman or woman nowadays, um, the, the corporate person who knows that their support for certain Christian causes or their lack of support for whatever the world makes them or says or their corporation says they should follow, their lack of support for that may well cost them their jobs and their livelihood could be the professional athlete who won't be forced to wear a moniker that opposes God's word. It could be churches that are steadfastly proclaiming the truth of God's word, whatever their country situation may be, here or wherever it may be. And they're just going to be faithful to expound what the eternal word of God says, even though the times might be pointing against them. Maybe the laws even start to come against them. Could be Christians giving sacrificially of themselves when we see people in need that no one else will take care of. We should take care of. We should be compelled to go be the ones to offer that hand to them. It will take some courage, sacrifice perhaps. Christians bringing the message of the gospel to places where it is costly to proclaim. The truth we see here at work underlying the whole of what Abram does. It's faith in God's promises, his sure promises. This is what empowers him to do this courageous act that we see, and it's the same for us. We have this example before us, and as we analyze this passage, be careful to notice the relevance for our lives today. Look at the first verses, the ones I didn't read outright, and look closely at them. There's lots of places and names, uh, but if you remember the basic structure or the explanation I gave what's happening, it'll be clear. What we see is Abram living in a very tumultuous time. It's a time of insecurity, um, you had to always be on the ready because someone would come and threaten to take your stuff. Um, it's that simple. It's the way to, I can best describe it. And we always live in such tumultuous times. They look a little different here and there, but at the root, it's a post-fall world with sinful people who are looking for their own self-interest. And this translates to societies, a world of evil, greed, and violence. We still live in this. The history of earth is a history of war and rumors of more wars. The history of earth is one of greed, of stealing, and murder. Tumult and peril fill this earth. And this is true in the region in which Abram founded, found himself in those days. Look at the first few verses and you see the stage set for what I describe. In the days of Amphrel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Shadalamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These are all north 
towards Mesopotamia, up where modern Iraq is, or Turkey, if you think of those areas up north, quite a ways north. These kings, verse 2, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Think of the Dead Sea at the end of the, the Jordan River. On the east side, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah were, south part of the, the east side of the Dead Sea. So there's Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shamabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sedum. So they had a big war um, that unleashed because the north attacked, but at the end, the south was defeated, and they were put under the the, the north put their foot on the neck of the south for many years. It says in verse 4, 12 years they had served Shadalimer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. After all that oppressive taxation, finally they said enough, and they quit sending their taxes. They didn't fight back militarily yet, but they just quit paying taxes. So it took a little while to register what's happening. Because remember, taxes are paid by way of livestock, gold, and silver, uh, not a, a bank transfer. And so it takes a little while. When the North realize what's happening, they decide they're going to come down and pressure them to fall back in line to this subjugation. And on the way, they're going to pillage other places that have cropped up since then. Look at verse 5. Describes this unfold. In the 14th year of Shadalimur and the kings who were with him uh, came and defeated the Rephaim, the Ashtoreth Kanim, the Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Sheva Karanthim. These are all places that are in addition to the southern places. Now, they're going to sweep down from the north, go on the east side of the Jordan River, east side of the Dead Sea, sweep underneath, and they'll take, they'll take Lot on the way, and then they'll move back up to the north. That's what's unfolding here. And the Horites uh, in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. So we see what's happening. They're just starting to plunder, pillage, murder afresh now. Now they're doing it again, places they haven't even been before. Verse 7, Then they turned back and came to En Misfat, that is Kadesh, that's down south, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazanon, Tamar. So at this point, out of desperation, as they could see them sweeping, the kings of the south get together, even get another king, and they're going to try to make a stand. That's in verse 8 and verse 9. The king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, king of Adma, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Shedalamar, the king of Elam, uh, Tidal, king of Goim, Amphrel, Shinar, Ariok, Elisar, four kings against five. But it didn't go well. They got routed, and they were chased away. And as they were chased away, down in the south side of the Dead Sea, there are these tar pits, essentially. That's what's being described. Now, the, the text could mean they were hiding in them. It doesn't necessarily mean they fell into them the way we read, but we get the picture. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of vitamin, that is tar asphalt, pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So they were in retreat, going around the southern part of the Dead Sea, and they would have moved to the west now getting closer to where Abram is. Now, it's not a big land area. We're just talking 20 to 40 miles movement. Uh, but when you're in these days with little transport or speed of transport, it would take some time. As they do the final sweep, we read in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. Now, he used to be in the suburbs of Sodom. Twelve years later, at this time, now he's living in Sodom. And there's Lot, his family, and all that he belongs gets, gets pillaged and looted by the, the north. And they take him with, and they move back up towards the north. They get quite a ways north um, before Abram is alerted. 
It says that they, were, they took Abram's, uh, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So what we see in this setup, in these opening verses, is a world of tumult and peril, a world that you can't have security or stability, not for real. Whatever security we think we have in this world, it's really not that secure, especially as it relates to possessions and land and even family. Even family's challenging with all the things and all the variables that come. We live in a perilous world. We live in a place with all sorts of draws that pull us to and fro. So we know there's a certain anxiety that comes with living this side of the fall and before Christ comes again, even for the people of God. Now, maybe it's not invading kings and such, but the world is constantly presenting believers with battles to fight, spiritual battles. Most are not with the same kind of violence or terror we may see here, but with angst and hatred. The world will oppose Christ and his church in many ways and on many occasions. Oh, it's fine if you're a Christian as long as you don't say anything about it. That's what the world will say. Abram lived in a tumultuous, perilous time. Unrest, uncertainty, constant threats of violence, no long-term stability. Now we see Abram's response in the midst of this tumult when he finds out that Lot, his righteous nephew, even though Lot didn't make good choices, for sure, where he aligned. It cost him his family. cost a lot. But we read in Hebrews that he did believe. He was a believer, and Abram had some devotion to his brother's son. So there's something that wells up, something of honor that wells up, something that desires to go defend the defenseless uh, that Abram is spurred on by. And we see it unfold here. We see this fruit of his faith in verses 13 down to 16. Abram faced with a real challenge in the midst of all this tumult. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, it's the first time we read him described as a Hebrew, told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. He had an alliance or an agreement with these, these uh, families. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. We read a lot about Abram, but we don't read much about him being a general, and he was. In fact, anybody that was a leader of a a small city-state like this in those days had to, by necessity, be ready to defend at any time. Uh, Abram was no pacifist, and the Bible doesn't teach pacifism. There's a time for defense, and he had to be ready for that defense. There's a sin-torn world where people who will come after you. And so Abram knew this, and he had trained men in his midst, 318 in his house. This means they were born and only knew uh, being, belonging to Abraham's larger household. And this means the city-state itself when it's termed household. And so these men were the most reliable, and they were trained by Abram himself. Abram knew how it was to defend. And so he is ready for this, as any comp, uh, competent leader in those days would have been ready also. Doesn't mean they could actually defeat a larger army, but they were at least ready to defend. And that's what we see unfolding in the life of Abram. And now he's ready, 318 of them. His response, think of the different Abram we got here. This is not the one who tried to strike a deal with Pharaoh, even giving up his wife to save himself. Now he's like, these are major marauding armies that are well known in the area. Really, there's no reason he should think he, he could defeat them. But he responds because Lot was in trouble. And the, the name of God is in trouble, at least in his, in his human mind, as he representing the true and living God, Lot representing the true and living God, is taken captive. And so he responds as God gives him faith to respond, and he moves uh, to help 
his nephew Lot. How would he do this? This is what's so interesting as it unfolds. He takes these 318 and he pursues them as far as Dan. When they go under the Dead Sea and go by him, a person escapes and tells them. They're up quite a ways, 40 or 50 miles before Abram even knows. So now he has to pursue with his 318 and catch them from the rears. That's what he's attempting to do. It's a bold task. It's a courageous task. Now, the enemy had no reason to believe any such attack would take place. They'd fought years before, fought this campaign with very little resistance, as it seems. So they weren't quite ready for this, which is part of the genius of Abram's plan. They're moving, for, they're moving to the north. From the south comes an attack they didn't expect. And the genius of it unfolds here. Look at verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night. So Abram, who's an old man at this point, nearing 100 years old, and he is dividing them himself and figuring out strategically how to attack them from the rear. They're sleeping at night. They're battle-worn, and they're also battle-wearied. And so he comes up from behind and figures a way to attack them with, a, with a, an immediacy and a ferocity that sends a message to them. And at night, you don't know how many. They have 300, they have 3,000. What's happening? And so here comes Abram, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Yes, that's the Damascus where Paul met Jesus. Then, after this defeat, verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So he gained back Lot and his stuff and moved back down south to where he was from. It's a magnificent victory. And despite all of his preparation and the prowess God had given him, God had given him this victory on the whole. This was a gift from God. God had shown him favor. Abram ventured out as an act of faith and showed great valor as a result. This is the promise that God gives to Abram as he goes. And he knows even if he, if he, even if he dies in this process, again, he's compelled knowing that the heavenly city has been promised to him. This compels him to go out and do some courageous things in the name of God for the glory of God. Abram, compelled in this way, carries out this incredible campaign. Now, as we relate this to ourselves, I don't know that God will call many of us uh, to such a feat. But there will be times where you will need to engage your faith. You'll be in a situation where it's, your God calls upon you to be faithful to the name of Christ wherever it is. It may be small to someone looking at it, but for you it's a big deal. And God will give you the courage necessary, the wisdom to know when that time comes. It could come as individuals. It could come to the church, this church, to the Christian church. Decisive moments in our life when we have to get off the bench and get into the game, so to speak. Times that we will be called to act, even heroically, out of the principles God gives us. We might have to be defiant for the witness of God's name on the earth. We might have to act or pour ourselves out sacrificially for those who are in need and have a desperation. We have to have ways in which we can somehow be the hands and feet of Christ to them. We are people of faith in Christ. And so we are called to be people of valor also. We'll have our moments in the coming days and years, I'm sure. Standing for righteousness, defending the defenseless, being bold with sharing the gospel message of Christ, being responsive to the troubles of others, giving mercy at the cost, at cost to ourselves. God will, and call, will call us to engage in this perilous world we're living in. It will look different for each of us, maybe similar for all of us, but it is a call from God that we engage these times. Not retreat and not hide, but engage. And we do so with full faith in God's promises for the here and for the future. 
in the end, we're reminded who gives the victory in this passage. Uh, Make no mistake, it wasn't Abram, the great general, that did this. It is God who gave him the victory. And this is the purpose of this meeting that we see after the battle's done and he's making his way back down with all the stuff. See how the victory is from God. And this is true. Every victory, every spiritual victory is from God. Look at verse 17 as it, as it falls, uh, falls out for the rest of the story. There's no natural explanation. We knew that already. And it's true that Abram knew the spiritual truth. The horse is made ready for war, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God was with Abram by the covenant commitment that he had made to him. He was empowered by the promises. In fact, this act that we see Abram do reminds us of what we read in the profession, or I should say the assurance of pardon. In Romans 8, this is a great encouragement to all of us as Christians. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Abram grasped this in his life. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The fact that he gave us Messiah. can tell us, it'll do, what more could he do? For We shouldn't ask for anything else. He's done this for us. But he gave us Christ. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine? Will nakedness do it? Danger, sword? Paul answers the question. And now Paul writing has all sorts of, of precedent in what God has done. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Wait a minute, death won't? No death won't. Because you will live forever as a believer. This is a short stop along the way in our faith and his promises for the eternal city, for the heavenly country, gives us ability to act courageously now. That's exactly what happens in this situation with Abram. Back to our text, verse 17. Genesis fourteen seventeen. After his return from the defeat of Shadalimur and the kings who were with him, Notice two people come to him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. So the king of Sodom goes to meet him. Now notice the king of Sodom wasn't in the battle to go get back his own people. He was back waiting. Abram went. The king of Sodom's there now as he comes back. And he's going to cut a bit of a business deal with Abram. But notice who else meets him. This is very, very key to understanding uh, God's pronouncement upon Abram in the promises. It says in verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of righteousness, or king of my righteousness, the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. This is to refresh him, uh, to refresh the troops. So the king of Sodom and the king of Salem came out to meet. King of Sodom came with earthly concerns about the stuff and the people. The king of Salem or Jerusalem, Salem is Jerusalem, came with heavenly redemptive concerns and pronouncements. Look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So, quick note, we learn here immediately that there were other believers in Abraham's God, in the true and living God, the God Most High. Many were worshipers of the sun and the moon and other things, but this Melchizedek had long lived in the region. People knew who he was. He was the priest of the most God Most High. He was a mediator. He was able to tell people about the God Most High. And yes, it's Abram that the Bible focuses on, but make no mistake, there are other people who God revealed himself to, and Melchizedek is one. And Melchizedek becomes very, very uh, 
particular in what he describes for the future in his person. We learn this from the New Testament, of course, but we get a flavor of it even just reading this initial account. What does Melchizedek do? Well, we know he's a king of Salem. We know he's a priest of the God Most High. Now he talks like a prophet. Look what he says as he blesses Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. In other words, Abram, you won this because God blessed you. Something Abram already knew. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, means he's the only God. And that God helped you, Abram. And God, Abram knows it. Then he says further, and blessed be God Most High. Let's turn our praise. Abram did this thing that God helped him do. Now let's turn our praise to that God. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. There's no question who gave the victory. There's no question who the true and living God is. And this mysterious person, Melchizedek, really further uh, shows the divine hand, the supernatural hand that's upon Abram. Who is Melchizedek of Jerusalem? Well, he's called a king and a priest, and I would say he speaks like a prophet too. Who else is a prophet, a priest, and a king? Truth be told, if it weren't for Hebrews shedding more light, we wouldn't know too much about him. But we do know because of Hebrews more about him. He's at very least a prefigurement of Jesus Christ. Some will say he's even in a, a Christophany of Jesus himself. He, he's a type or a picture of what the Messiah to come will do and how he will function. Now remember this interpretively. Genesis is written by Moses in 1445 B.C. He's writing about events that happened in 2000 B.C. Now Moses was schooled at Egypt. He knew the geography. He knew the people. He knew a lot of the history. God uses Moses by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give this very precise historical and redemptive account. Now I say all this because the people who were initially receiving Genesis the first time under Moses would have started to become aware of the Levitical priesthood. And they would know of those priests. And those priests were very limited. Uh, They came only from the tribe of Aaron. They were Levites. They only had a term of service of 30 years. And what they did was limited to just the time of Israel. There would be the Christ who would come and fulfill all of that. Well, Melchizedek is a prophecy of Christ. He's a prophecy of the final prophet, priest, and king. This unfolds, and so the person of Melchizedek comes, and there's something about Abram that recognizes this, and he even bows to him. He doesn't bow to any other king, but he bows to Melchizedek and gives tithe to him, demonstrating this important role, this prefigurement that Melchizedek offers. This is how we understand Melchizedek to be. And where do I get this? Well, I wouldn't know it if it weren't for the fact that the author of Hebrews says the following in Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most, of most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what the Melchizedek means. And he is by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. And Salem is shalom. Shalom is what it means. That's peace. He's a righteousness and peace. Both descriptions given to Jesus. And this is who Melchizedek is. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, let's say he is the son of God, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. This lack of genealogy simply means he can't be traced to Aaron's house. So get out of your mind, Israelites, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood working in the tabernacle in the temple. It's not that one. This is one who is not limited by that, and the ultimate Christ to come will not be limited by any of it. 
So he's a picture of the Christ to come, and he is offering a revelation that Abram is the one whom we should look to as the main character now unfolding through the rest of the Old Testament. There's a sense in which he gives Abram the covenantal mantle. And Abram responds in tribute by tithing everything he has to him. Verse Hebrews 11, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. It says in Hebrews 11, It's beyond dispute that the inferior, Abram, is blessed by the superior. So the God of Abram, he is the one that is magnified as the giver of this great, great victory. And Melchizedek confirms Abram's covenantal position by pronouncing this great blessing that we read. Calvin, who is commenting on this whole interchange, he said Melchizedek functioned to confirm and ratify the grace of the divine vocation or the promises that God gave. He is confirming them through the person of Abram, Abram, to Abram through Melchizedek. He says further, the image of Christ was presented to the fathers of the patriarchs, to Abram, in his person, Melchizedek. David refers to him later when talking about this eternal priesthood of the Messiah to come. Look at verse 21. We'll see a completely different, a different conversation. So, Abram has a spiritual conversation with Melchizedek. There's a forecast of the Christ to come. There's a a view to the promises that are his. And then you read what Sodom, the king of Sodom says, verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So he just wants the people, the manpower that he has, give me them, and then you could keep the stuff for for your troubles. Uh, He was going to give payment for the rescue. He, this would have been a significant amount of stuff, for sure. But notice the response. We, we get an immediate proof of what Abram gathers from the promises by what he says. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand. I've taken an oath to the Lord. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will not take anything from the world because the world will say that it made me. That's what he's saying. And you're the world. I, I have the possessor of heaven and earth as my God. He's already poured it out a lot of me. He's promised me the future. I'm not going to take anything from you because at some point you're going to say, you're the reason for why I'm rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Askel, and Mamer take their share. Just, just pay back what they needed for the trip and the journey, and we'll move on. And brothers and sisters, the world will offer us all sorts of things. They'll even say peace with these things. But we should not take these things. The world will call for us to unite with it. We should not. The world will say to follow us, not your God. We should not. Our eternal victory has been won by God, so we are devoted to him, whatever the cost. God will give us great blessings in this life, he does, but our great reward is yet to come, and that's what compels us, not immediate peace and comfort and promised stability. No person can promise that stability. We ha- we, our faith in God calls us to obey him, whatever the perilous situation might seem like. We may have to give up some temporary earthly comforts to follow God. You know, I am ecstatic like any other Christian about the great news from the Supreme Court. 
But I am also really hopeful that there will be many foster parents at Redeemer. All spiritual victories are from God and for his glory. Dear believers, faith in God's promises empowers us to act courageously for his glory. Whatever he may call us to, and we don't even know what that is just yet, perhaps. You know, valor is a word I chose to use in the sermon title because I think it works well for what Abram did. Valor is almost always used in our context, in the American context, in association with the military. It's reserved for people who fight in battles and act courageously. And they're given medals that symbolize that they were in such and such a battle and they acted courageously. That's valor. That proves they were courageous in the face of great danger. And the way you really know how serious this, this term is, is something called stolen valor. This is a crime, as it should be. It's, it's if someone wears a military uniform and puts medals on that they did not earn. They weren't, didn't really serve and they didn't really earn. Them. That's stolen valor. And you go to jail for that. That's how serious a term it is. And so when we say here, through the person of Abram, that faith leads to valor, it's not, it's not too slight. Faith that God gives you is so profound and so powerful that it will lead you to do courageous things in dangerous times. And there will be these kinds of calls for us, guaranteed that it will come. God might call you today to do something courageous or in this week. God calls parents to something courageous every day when you're wrestling with the shepherding of your kids in the face of a world that really just wants to devour them. God might call you to stand up to friends who are pushing you in a direction that is away from God and his honor and is harmful ultimately to them as well. God might be calling you to be a voice in a godless age, which might lead to hardship for you. You might get canceled. God might be calling you to bring the gospel to someone who has harmed you. God might be calling you to reconcile. It's a God of reconciliation. He's reconciled himself with you. You reconcile with someone in your family, someone in your sphere of friends. That you know you, the fruit of Christ's gift to you will be to reconcile, even when it's difficult. It takes some courage to do. Someone that may have harmed you greatly. Maybe God's going to call you to a severe trial in this next, these next days, months, or weeks, years. Some trial that you have to endure. And will be a witness for Christ as you undergo that. A witness for one who trusts in him in the heavenly city. He might call us, might call you to help people in great need, even at great expense for us. He may call us to represent him in some way we cannot yet picture. Abram's faith in God's promise of salvation in the future heavenly city, these are what compelled him to do this amazing, amazing task of this campaign to go rescue Lot. The Abram of Genesis 12 is not the Abram of Genesis 14. And the you of 2022 will not be the you of 2030 if God gives you those days. And hopefully, the God of the person you are in 2022 is, is, is advanced from the person you were in 2010. As God does his work in your life to confirm his promises and make you more and more faithful, more and more courageous. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are inspired by the actions of Abram because we know that in so many ways we are just like him. He lacked faith and he lacked courage, but you gave these to him and he was empowered to do courageous things for your name and for your glory. Oh Lord, none of us know the particulars of the future, but we know that you will call upon us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in your work. We also know because of your great and precious promises that you will be with us and strengthen us For this, we give you thanks and praise. O God, you are our help in ages past. You are our hope for the years to come. 
You have been our shelter and you will be our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Through Christ, amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals in response.